0: Last Sunday was Allison and I's one-year anniversary. You should awe because it's cute, okay? Um, And we also did this to be even more adorable. Um, At our wedding, there were two different sections that I want to talk about. The declarations... And the vows, because they're different. The declaration is the response to the question, will you take Allison to be your wife? Will you love her, comfort her, honor and protect her and forsaking all others, be faithful to her as long as you both shall live. The vow is where the famous I do comes in. Do you take Allison to be your wife? To have and to hold from this day forward for better, for worse, for worse. For richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do you part. I really like those vows because they specify the bad times. In the the declarations, you talk about comforting and loving and honoring and protecting, but those are kind of generic. But in the vow, you say for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health. While we were engaged, I wrote Allison a letter about each of these vows, and I told her that they overwhelmed me, not because of her, but because of me. Because it's one thing to have and to hold for better, for richer, for healthier, but I wondered, am I a good enough man to have and to hold her in the worst times, in poorer times, in sickness? Sometimes it's good to just look at these vows, if you've ever made vows, and to realize that they include the bad times. They're a promise about the future, regardless of what that future holds. We heard heard someone make a vow this morning to follow Christ for the rest of her life, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. But it's difficult for our culture to really fathom why we care so much about making promises. I think our culture discourages us from ever making promises. We are are taught that promises about the future are not just foolish, but they're enslaving. Think about the, the metaphors for marriage. We call it being tied down. We take a beautiful promise like that. And call it enslaving. But it's not just in marriage either. If I, if I told some of the college students, okay, you have to promise to stay in one career for the rest of your life. You're like, I'm never going to do that. In a million years, right? If some of you have moved to Austin in the past few years, would you promise to move here for five years? Period. No questions asked. Ten years, twenty years. I bet Not. Because our culture teaches us from a very young age, how can you be sure that you'll make and keep your promises? At the same time, our culture teaches us to not expect other people to fulfill their promises. Presidents on the campaign trail, they don't keep promises. Businessmen and businesswomen, economists, they can't make promises about the, our economy. Colleges can't fulfill promises about how your life will be after you graduate. Our culture tells us over and over and only, only fools make promises, and only fools expect others to keep their promises. But then there's God, and God makes a lot of promises. He doesn't always give a date for when he's going to fulfill promises, but he always makes promises about the future. You cannot read scripture from Genesis to Revelation and not see so many promises. Throughout the fall, we've been talking about something called the Apostles' Creed, and it's an ancient confession of faith that Christians have professed for centuries And if you read it blandly, it sounds like a list of spiritual ideas or propositions that you can take or leave. But I want to reframe the creed this morning after preaching through it all of this fall as a promise. Promises made by God and kept by God. And this is what the creed says. I believe in God, the father almighty maker of heaven and earth. In Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit born of the Virgin Mary and suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, he died, and he was buried, and he descended to the dead. But on the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. From there, we can already see a promise right here, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Universal Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Think about this creed as a kind of promise. Even if you aren't Christian, this should matter because you need to know whether the God that Christians worship actually follows through on his promises. If His promises come up short, why in the world would you live your life based on an unreliable God? And for those of you who are Christian, this, is, this isn't just easy to do because we have to trust in our God on a daily basis. Our trust and faith in God's promises will be tested throughout our lives. It matters if God makes and keeps His promises. But the good news of today is that God has fulfilled His promises in Jesus Christ. And this good news comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12. We're going to read some of these verses again. So if you have a Bible app on your phone or if you see the, the, the uh, Bible in the pew rack in front of you, you can grab that. We'll be in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to read through this good news again. Because we need to be reminded of it over and over and over again. The author of this letter is named Paul. And he's writing to a church that is upset with him for not coming to see them. Remember, this is an honor and shame based society. His absence, if he promised to be with them, would be seen as a personal affront. It would be a shame that he said he was going to come to see them, but didn't. And we don't know the exact reason he couldn't come. All he says is we were so utterly and unbearably crushed that we despaired of life itself. We felt that we had received the sentence of death. Now that actually might have been a literal death sentence. Whatever it is, it might have been a long imprisonment. It might have been torture. But remember this, Paul has already earlier in his ministry been beaten within an inch of his life. If he's saying to the Corinthians in this letter, after he failed to come to see them, that what happened to him was awful and outside of his control, it must have been bad. But he has to he has to write to this church. He started this church. So in verse 12 of his letter, he says, This is our boast. We are proud to say this. This is the testimony of our conscience. We have behaved in the world with frankness and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, by the grace of God. We write nothing other than what you can read and what you can understand. And I hope that you will understand until the end as you've already understood us in part. I hope that on the day of the Lord, we are your boast even as you are our boast. So Paul is saying, look, I have a clear conscience when I say this. I have acted with integrity towards you. When Jesus comes back, I hope that both you and I can be proud of each other. I hope that this event that was out of my control does not come between us. Then he explains to them in verse 15, he says, I was sure of this. I wanted to come to you first. So that you might have a double favor, but I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and then to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on back to Judea. Now, basically, Paul says what this whole church is thinking. Was I vacillating? Was I fickle when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to ordinary human standards Ready to say yes and no at the same time. What answer does he want them to give? No. I don't work that way. I don't make plans that way. I don't make them just to drop them if it's inconvenient. I made them intending to come to see you. But this is Paul's concern. He said, okay, I promised, here's my plan. This is what happened to me that prevented me from coming to you. It was out of my control. But this is what Paul is concerned about. In an honor-shame culture, his inability to keep this promise makes him worried that they will think his message is unreliable too. But this is what he says in verse 18. He says, As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, was not yes and no. But in Him, that's Jesus Christ, it is always yes. Okay, look, Paul is not saying, I'm as faithful and as perfect as God... He's saying, my inability to come to you is not reflective of my message. God is faithful. Jesus Christ always keeps his promises. The message about him was not, "Uh, yes and no, maybe, perhaps. In him, it is always yes. He's assuring them, my message, my gospel to you is not untrustworthy because my traveling issues... The bedrock of my message is that God is faithful to you, loyal to you, steadfast. He keeps his promises. God is not a fickle, fair weather, yes and no. He is a confident, unreserved, unashamed yes. And I love this last verse. For in him, that's Jesus Christ, every single one of God's promises is yes. Some of your translations may say, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. Or another translation says, for all the promises of God find their yes in Him. In other words, God makes promises and Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of those promises. And I think at the end of the year, In this time of the Christmas season, this is so important to remember. Because sometimes we treat Jesus as kind of an isolated religious teacher who came around about 2,000 years ago. He was very good to uh, disadvantaged and poor people. We We should be like him. But he doesn't have any kind of history that led up to him. Other times we think he's kind of a rejection of the past. Like he came to start this totally brand new religion. There was nothing that preceded him. He just wanted to break away from the old outdated religion. But that is not our faith. Our faith is that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises. Some of them may be hard to remember, but just the sheer scale of all of the promises that God makes in the Old Testament is incredible. Centuries before Jesus is born, God is making promises about him. He promises through Isaiah that a young virgin would give birth to a son. He promises through Hosea that a Messiah would come who would be called out of Egypt. God promises through Jeremiah and Ezekiel that a descendant of David would come as the Messiah. A Jewish prophet named Micah says the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. Zechariah says he's going to be greeted with joy when he comes into Jerusalem. The promises keep building and piling up on each other. How could a God fulfill all of these promises he makes? But he does. What God promises in the Old Testament would happen actually happened. The New Testament authors are constantly trying to tell us, look at all this fulfillment. Jesus' mother Mary was a virgin who gave birth to him in Bethlehem. He comes from the line of David. His family, when he was young, fled to Egypt and then they came out of Egypt. Exactly as Hosea said, over and over and over again, we see promise and fulfillment, promise and fulfillment Promise and fulfillment. In Christ, every single one of God's promises is yes. God is a promise making and promise keeping God. Uh, In college, the most infamous answer you could give to anybody is, let me check my calendar, because that was a nice way of saying, no, I'm definitely not going to come to the thing that you just invited me to come to. I mean, we were, we were infamous for making a thousand different answers instead of yes or no, because and I'll just speak for myself. I don't want to speak for college students across the world. I'll speak for myself. I had the fear of missing out. I didn't want to make plans. I didn't want to say yes and then find out that there's something better and then have to make up a reason that I was not going to the first thing and then doing the second thing because I was the kind of person who loved to say, I'll check my calendar. Let me think about it. Maybe. All of the things that Paul says that Jesus Christ is not. Jesus is a confident Unreserved, unashamed, yes. All of God's promises find their yes in Jesus. And this is so important as we've been preaching through the creed for months now. We see so many promises come to their fulfillment and stated in that creed. God promised through the prophet Joel that he would pour out his Holy Spirit on all flesh. And we say in our creed, I believe in the Holy Spirit. God promised he would bring the forgiveness of sins. And we say every week, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. God promised a suffering servant would come. And Jesus is that suffering servant who we say suffered, crucified, died, and was buried. And the beauty of all this, all these promises made by God and fulfilled in Christ, is that we don't meet half, halfway with God. We don't do 50% of the salvation work. He does all of it. All of it he does for us. We didn't participate in salvation. We didn't make that happen. God totally fulfilled the promises he made exactly as he spelled them out through his prophets. God is a promise-making and promise-keeping God. And all of our response, all of our response is, is not to participate with him in doing salvific work. All we say in response is amen. For this reason it is through Christ that we say the amen to the glory of God. Now this this Hebrew word amen has a lot of meanings. But one of them is just simply agreement. It's like signing the bottom of a document. It's saying I own this. This is my faith. This is what I stand on. When we profess the creed, we say I'm going to stand for these ideas, these truths. I don't know if you know this, but Jesus often starts his teachings with truly, truly, I tell you. The word that he's actually saying right there is amen, amen. We end our prayers with amen, with I believe this, I sign on to this. Jesus starts his teachings with truly, truly, amen, amen. What I'm saying is true. And we respond to that with amen. We believe what he says. A few weeks ago, maybe a month or two ago, uh, we were all singing together and we could hear one of our kids singing loudly and proudly. His name's Max. And Ben kind of stopped the song at the end and said... This is just so beautiful to be able to hear all these ages singing together. And Max said so proudly, amen. Amen. And it was so amazing to hear a child say amen, because no child and no adult for that matter fully understands our faith. None of us fully comprehend all of these truths that we've been talking about this fall, but we all say amen. Just like a child. We confess this. Bringing it before God. Saying, let it be. Amen is really fitting because not all of God's promises have been fulfilled yet. We, we, we say every week, I believe in the resurrection of the body. I believe in life everlasting. And we are not experiencing that right now. And it is difficult to wait For God to fulfill his promises. Uh, In July, Allison and I found out that uh, her dad, Alan Brown, uh, has stage two lymphoma. And uh, he planned out six treatments uh, with his doctors at MD Anderson. And he did three and got a full body CAT scan after the third one is in total remission uh of cancer. And uh he just finished this past week his um he just finished his sixth treatment and there's a spot on the wall in M.D. Anderson that has a man When I practice these, I don't cry. There's this bell uh, that has a prayer of a woman uh, who went through her whole cancer treatment. And he finally got to ring the bell having finished his treatments. And waiting, waiting for that is so hard. Waiting. Waiting. For God to fulfill His promises, like the resurrection of the body and life everlasting, it is difficult. It will weigh on you throughout your life. It is not easy. But we say amen and we don't cross our fingers behind our backs because we trust that God can fulfill these promises. We're not hoping for ourselves to fulfill these promises. We want God, the, the maker of heaven and earth, to fulfill his promises. But it doesn't make it any easier to wait. But we trust in his character. That he's fulfilled promises in the past and he will fulfill his promises in the future. I began talking about promises in marriage. We have seen a a promise made in baptism. But one of the promises I admire most is the promise of adoption. To say to someone, I will be your father. I will be your mother. Um, In Nigeria, there's an archbishop named Benjamin Kawashi. Um, and he's an international speaker. He goes all over the place uh, to share what's going on in his, in his country, Nigeria, because he faces a lot of difficulties with a militant group called Boko Haram. And one time after an international trip, he flew home and he walked into his house and there were 12 kids uh, in his living room. And it was getting close to uh, getting pretty dark outside and he went to his wife Gloria and said, um, "Well, you've got you to gotta send these kids home. I mean, they, it, it's getting laid out. It could be dangerous for them. And she said, they are home. And he said, what, what are you talking about? And she said, well, if, if they weren't going to be adopted into a family, they, they weren't going to be safe. So... They are home because I adopted all 12 of them, and they're our kids now. And he said, we should probably talk about things like this before uh, before you go ahead and do it. So a few months later, he goes on an international trip, and he comes back, and there are 32 kids. This is not a joke. I'm not messing around. There are 32 children in his home, and he says, Gloria? And she says, well, I mean, they wouldn't be protected and, and I just, I couldn't leave them unsafe. And so they're all our kids now. And to this day, I don't want to get this number wrong, so I'm going to check. To this day, they have 62 children and 500 kids in an orphanage in the back of their house. Ben was like, I'm never going on an international trip, ever again. (laughs) Um, But this is where the story gets intense. So I just, I want to be delicate about this. Um, He had, he continued to go on international trips because he was a very sought out uh, speaker. And uh, his flight was supposed to get back to Nigeria and he was supposed to get home. And Boko Haram had planned to kill him. So they sent two soldiers to his house, but his flight, Ben Kwashi's, got canceled. So he wasn't home. And so these two soldiers show up at the house and uh, they confront Gloria. And Gloria says, his flight got canceled. Don't harm our kids. Just, Just leave. He's not here. He's not here. But they were upset that he wasn't there, so they took out their hatred upon her and shot her in the head. Um, Benjamin Quashi comes home, finds his own wife in their bedroom that way, and assumes that she's died. But he calls the ambulance, and she's alive. She was shot in the head and is still alive. They rush her to the hospital and she's in a coma for three months. The Queen of England, knowing the Archbishop, calls him and says, I heard about your story. I heard about what happened to your wife. Uh, we're offering you asylum in England to keep you safe from what's happening in Nigeria. After three months of being in a coma, Ben prays over her and prays for God to spare her life. At the end of three months, she comes to. And Ben says to her, very first words, he says, The Queen of England has offered us asylum. We can move away from here. And Gloria said, But who will take care of our kids? So they're still in Nigeria because a mother made promises to her children to be their mother. I cannot fathom the kind of character it takes to make and keep that kind of promise. If I could be half the person that Gloria is, I would love to be. But that's God's character. He makes and fulfills His promises, He promises to be our Heavenly Father. He promises to raise us from the dead. He promises us life everlasting. We have records of these promises in Scripture. And God will not hesitate to follow through on them. And because God says yes in Christ, we say amen. We say amen to all of the promises made and fulfilled in Jesus. Let's pray. God, whatever You promise is fulfilled in Christ. This is what we preach and pray One word, Amen. You affirm us and make us a sure thing in Jesus Christ. You put His yes within us. And in the same way that He starts His sentences with Amen, we finish our prayers with the same word. In Jesus' name, Amen.